Good, succinct announcements. I love it. Good morning. Why did it get so cold out? <laughs> it's April. I know, but I like, I've been teased by spring. Oh, it was so sad. Well, you guys know we had a great Easter uh, service here last weekend, and that wrapped up our Lenten sermon series. So for those of you who might be newer, every Lent we conduct a set of prayer experiments or exercises as a church that hopefully help us be open to drawing closer to Jesus. And so we call these three prayer experiments, we call it praying for our six. This is where we pick six people sort of on the periphery of our life and pray for them every day. My big ask where we're asking God for something for ourselves every day, and then our big ask, where we're asking for something as a church. And so today I want to give you just a brief update on our big ask, and then address some thoughts or questions that may have surfaced during this prayer season for us. So first, for our big ask, we prayed for more Blue Ocean Church plants, because people from all over the country have expressed an interest in having a church like ours, and so we've been praying that God would help us be the kind of church that can support new churches like this that are springing up. So in particular, we focused on four different Blue Ocean Church plants, two of them in California, one in Grand Rapids, and one in Columbus, Ohio. And so I'm happy to report that as a congregation, we gave $2,500 to each one of those churches to help them get going. Yep. Part of our commitment to this vision. And then I just learned this week of another Blue Ocean Church plant that's starting in Duluth, Minnesota, that's led by another former vineyard pastor. So we're looking forward to what's going on there. The second thing is, is our church board wanted to do something to honor Ken's late wife, Nancy. So Ken is now married to Julia, who's an Episcopalian priest, but he was married to Nancy for 40-something years. And as many of you know, she had a really large heart for um, single moms and for their families. And so our staff and board wanted to start a scholarship fund to help some single moms and their kids with college expenses. And so to that end, we communicated that we were planning to give away our Easter offering, right? Not what was given online, but whatever was collected last week during the service to add to the fund. And so that fund right now is sitting at $3,100. And we expect that there's going to be some more money actually coming in from some of Nancy's family as well. So we are excited to move forward to help a single mom or the child of a single mom with education expenses. So that was our big ask. Um, But I've often found that the other two exercises, the praying for our six and the my big ask, sometimes raise questions for people as we move through Lent. So for some of you, you've been praying for something every day for yourself, and you can say, yeah, I can totally see where God's been answering my prayer or has answered my prayer. But for others of us, the question might be, okay, so why didn't my prayer get answered? And so I think whether or not we feel like our personal prayer for ourselves was answered, I think this is a helpful subject for us to talk about as a community, because there's always like a question under the question, right? With a question like, why didn't my prayer get answered? Lying beneath that are questions about God's character and about how the world works within a Christian framework and how prayer works, if it works, within our world. So when I was young, my friends had, or my parents had a friend named Vicky. And Vicki was diagnosed with MS when she had two really small children. And the the disease progressed to the point where I remember she dropped her youngest baby um, because half of her body would just freeze up and be paralyzed. And so a few years went by, and we didn't see that family very often, but my dad prayed really faithfully for her. And one morning he woke up, and he felt like God told him, like in a voice in his head or just outside, but he heard very clearly, Vicki's been healed. And so he called her, and sure enough, her symptoms were gone. 
And then 25 years later, she still hasn't had any symptoms of that disease, to my knowledge. I'm still Facebook friends with her oldest daughter. So was it a misdiagnosis? Maybe. But it stuck out to me as a kid as something mysterious, as if it's possible that sometimes people could be healed through prayer. But then later on, my dad's mom, my grandma, she lost a long battle with breast cancer. And I was about 15, and I remember my dad just lamenting about how confusing that was, that even though he prayed like crazy for her, much like he did with Vicky, that she still lost her fight, right? So why one and not the other? So I'm going to unpack a couple of thoughts that have been helpful to me as I've wrestled with questions like these over the years, and I'll just offer them to you for whatever they're worth. And the first thought, I'm sorry, my hair keeps getting in my eye. That's so unusual here. God doesn't, I think the first thought that I have is that God doesn't always get God's way right now. God doesn't always get God's way right now. So the biblical writers, their perspective is that there were only two ages. This is the way they saw the world. There was this present evil age, and then there was the age to come. The coming kingdom, you might hear it called the kingdom of God. And the way they pictured it is that when Jesus was born that these two ages collided, right? You might think of it like a Venn diagram. That was helpful to me. So if this present evil age is like a big yellow circle and the kingdom of God, the kingdom to come is a blue circle and those collide, there's like an overlapping part, right? Can you see that? Like a green section where the two are overlaying. And that's where they picture us living, it's this space where God's kingdom is partly here and partly not here. And you might hear it called in churchy circles. You might hear this green section called the time between the times. Or the now, but the not yet. Meaning God's kingdom is here now, but it's not yet all the way here. Right? This means that God's peace, God's justice, God's healing, his kingdom is partially breaking forth in our world, but it's not all the way here. It's not blue. The yellow still affects our world. And in their worldview, in their perspective, that when Christ comes again, that present evil age will totally be gone and we will just have the kingdom of God. So that's the way the New Testament writers saw the world. And Jesus, he spoke frequently of this kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he did this. He spoke about the kingdom coming as he was healing people and as he was restoring people to community. And when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's referring to God's rule and reign on earth. Right? This was not viewed by Jesus or his early followers as fully here. And what Jesus seems to be doing is inviting us into his project of trying to pull part of this future kingdom of God into the here and now. He said, we are filled with God's spirit, right? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We're filled with that spirit. And when we are loving our neighbor as ourself and loving God and praying and working to heal and restore the world around us, we are part of the inbreaking of this kingdom. So God doesn't always get God's way right now because the kingdom isn't fully here. That's been helpful to me. But another thought that's been helpful is one is called the open view of God or open theism. And in some circles, this is seen as controversial. So I'll just offer it as something that's been helpful to me, but not as something that I view as fundamental to our faith. So I'm going to get a little bit heady here. Some of you guys might have grown up in Calvinist traditions. So Calvin, following St. Augustine, 
Calvinists picture the future as something that's set in stone. Right, that God created the exact future with an exact plan or blueprint in mind for his purposes, and it's set in stone and it cannot be changed. And in this view, humans don't have free will, because if we did, it would mean that God's sovereignty would be diminished. Right? So the way they think is that if God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing, then God can't let humans have any say over their own lives. Everything has to go to God's perfect plan. Now, that might be a little bit simplified. There are more liberal Calvinists today who have a little bit more nuanced view. But this is what we call the classic view of God, and it's prevalent in Christian thinking. So when you hear people say things like, God is in control, or everything happens for a reason, we're hearing echoes of this classic view of God. So I actually saw this manifest in a Facebook post this week by a really dear friend of mine who was a strong Calvinist, and he recently lost a friend to gun violence. He had a friend who was murdered last week, and he posted this as his status update. He said, I wish I understood why some people are taken from us so abruptly. God's ways are perfect, and I have to rest in that today. Right? God's ways are perfect. I have to rest in that today. But what bothers me about this view of God is that it ascribes credit to God for both good and evil in our world. Right? Like it was God's will for this man's friend to be murdered. Because if God's ways are perfect, then this must have been God's perfect will. But for me, that really messes with the picture that we have in Jesus of God as love. As God is love incarnate, like how could a loving God create a murderer? How could he create an Adolf Hitler or a Stalin if God already knew what they were going to do? Does God's end game, this coming kingdom, whatever that looks like, does that justify the means? And I think it's hard to look at Jesus and answer that with a yes. So for me, the classic view says something about God that I don't feel is consistent with scripture or with my experience um, or the experience of many believers. And that's that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good because that is his nature. So what's called the open view of God is actually uh, an evolution of Armenian thought. So the Armenians were in conversation with the Calvinists, and they argued that humans had to have free will if we were really able to love God and not just be like automatons. Right? So open theism is sort of an offshoot of this. So what it does is it affirms that God is sovereign, that yes, God is the supreme ruler. He is the ultimate power in the universe. But it asks this. It says, what if God chooses to not know certain things? What if God chooses to not know certain things? That he chooses not to know things that he could know in order for humans to have a real relationship with him. To allow us, um, to, allow us to reveal what we want, when we want, not because we have to, but because we want to. Right, so my desire isn't to have my wife tell me she loves me because she has to, or she's been pre-programmed, but because she wants to, because she chooses to love me. And what if this God can choose to know, um, choose to not know with certainty exactly how we'll behave? Right, I think God can make pretty good guesses. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He can know us just by observing us. He knows what we're like when we're alone. He knows how vulnerable we're willing to be with him and with other people. He knows our character. He knows our boundaries, what we seem to be willing to do and not willing to do. And I think he can know us well enough to predict how we might act in given circumstances, right? Circumstances that he can and does influence and sometimes orchestrate. But he chooses to not be able to say with 100% certainty what we will do. 
So a good example of this in scripture is King Saul. So in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Samuel, we're told that the Hebrew people have been asking God for a king. Right? They've been asking and asking, give us a king to rule over us. And God has been warning the people through a prophet named Samuel. He's saying, look, a king, having a king will not go well for you. What kings will do is they will take all of your sons and they will add them to an army and they will build a military and send them out to fight. And a king, what they're going to do is they're going to exploit your property and your money for their own purposes and to help their friends. You don't want a king. But the people said, no, we really want a king. And so God tells Samuel, he says, okay, there's a man who's named Saul and I've chosen him to lead the people. And so the prophet Samuel, he goes and he anoints Saul to be the king and God's best prediction seems to be that, God is, or that Saul is a man of good character and that he's going to deliver the people from the Philistines. And God plans to honor Saul and his descendants. That's his intention towards Saul. But by the time we get a little ways into Saul's reign as king, God says to Samuel, he said, I regret that I made Saul king. He's turned back from following me. He's not carried out my commands. I regret that I made Saul king. So God's best prediction about Saul at the time that he made him king was that he would follow God and he would carry out his commands. I think it was a wise choice given the factors that were known at the time, but Saul is still a free agent and he can choose to not follow God. Another example comes in Isaiah chapter 5. And here God is describing his people as a vineyard. And what God says is that he expected grapes to grow in this vineyard, but instead, wild grapes grew. So he says this, he says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There is pleasant planting. He expected justice, but he saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry. It's like God did everything he could to influence the outcome of the crop in this vineyard, right? He says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done in it? And yet, and so the idea is that perhaps God sets up parameters in the way that we live and act, and he can influence people when we're open to it. He can influence circumstances, but then we are free agents within those parameters, Right? He can know things and not others. And he can make extremely informed guesses as to what will happen and how humans will behave. But sometimes even he seems to be surprised. It's like he's saying, I thought I set everything up just right, but you still made bad choices. We see this several times in the prophets. Jeremiah, a couple of different places. God expected his people to turn back to him, but they don't. And Jesus doesn't seem to interact with the world in a way that says that everything good, bad, and ugly is part of God's plan, right? Jesus is going around and he's healing the sick and he's including the outsider and he's speaking prophetically against like the religious and the social systems as if those things are from the kingdom of darkness and he's fighting those things with the kingdom of light. He saw it as a spiritual battle that was going on and so he's carrying out the father's plan by combating these things, he didn't say that sickness and evil were part of the Father's plan. Everything that he does actually indicates the opposite. So this idea of God choosing to not know some things, of the world being maybe a more open system, it's not new. Like this has been widely held actually in the African-American church traditions, among some Methodists, and then especially I would say among the Charismatics or more Pentecostal people. 
This idea that there's some amount of unpredictability in the way that God relates to the world reflects some of what we're learning from science as well. In quantum physics, in chaos theory, in emergence theory, which I've been doing a little reading on to try and get my head around, what we're learning is that complex systems incorporate some degree of unpredictability, especially on the individual level. Right? So it's much easier to predict a big picture outcome of a complex system than it is to predict the individual actors within the system. I'm looking at my scientists and hoping I'm somewhat on this. Okay, good. <laughs> so the way I imagine this is like an advertising agency. Like, let's say you've got a really big advertising agency and they're representing Coca-Cola. What they can say with certainty is that they can drive sales. That sales of Coca-Cola will increase, more parts of the product will be sold. They can say that with some degree of certainty, but they can't tell me whether or not Rachel will buy a Coke or whether Brad will buy a Coke. No, no, he's a Mountain Dew man, we all know that. <laughs> I think of the kingdom of God and I think of the global church in a similar way. Right? It's a complex system. And God can predict the in picture pretty accurately. Right? The kingdom of God will expand. It, the expansion knows no end, right? He can predict the in picture pretty accurately, but it's harder to predict how individuals are going to act within the system because we're free agents, able to make choices that either bring the kingdom into our world or not. But the parameters are set in such a way that the kingdom is breaking through. I also believe that the witness of Scripture tells us that prayer can impact these complex systems. Right? In Ezekiel 22, we're told that God was looking for someone, anyone, to pray to change the circumstances of the people. Right? There are numerous accounts where prayer is said to change the course of events or even to change God's mind. In fact, with this view of how God works, I think prayer actually becomes even more important because it feels like it can, in fact, influence the world around us. Right? A world with free agents that's dynamic and interactive and changeable and where God's mind can even be changed. How does that work? I don't know. Does prayer have to do with like energy fields or some like different dimensions? Maybe. But I believe it works. And sometimes it can work in really miraculous, mysterious ways. So what does this have to do with leap of faith? Well, maybe your personal big ask involved another person. My view of God is that he doesn't force people to do things. He might invite them to do things. He might set up circumstances that will make it more likely that they'll do things, but he doesn't force us into relationships and he doesn't force us to make certain choices. And sometimes we don't get what we ask for, I think, because it's not good for us. And in that case, like if you feel like your prayer hasn't been answered, that might be a good follow-up question for God. This is something that is good for me. And maybe he can give you some insight. We talk a lot about childlike faith in Blue Ocean. And so we talk about being in a childlike relationship with God who is our good father and wants our best for us. Sometimes I think we don't get what we ask for because the timing isn't right. Or perhaps God hasn't had time to set up the circumstances that could allow for our need to be addressed. Or it's addressed in a way that is different than we were hoping for. I know that's happened to me several times, and I think as I've talked to different people in the congregation over the years, people have looked back and said, yeah, that wasn't answered in the timing that I thought, but when I look at it now, I can tell that God was at work. And sometimes why things happen or not is just a mystery. You know, I'm, I'm no answer machine. I could be wrong about the way I'm looking at the world. In the end, I think we can only piece together what we know about God personally 
as well as through scripture and through the experiences of other people as they've encountered him in history. And what I know of God is that God is love. And he is love revealed most fully in his son, Jesus. And if God is love, then the God that we serve doesn't make bad things happen to good people to be mean. He doesn't do it to teach us a lesson. He doesn't treat humans as expendable for the greater good. I don't believe God ever intends ill toward his humans. I don't think God gives us diseases to punish us. I don't think it's ever God's will for us to get sick with disease. And God doesn't refuse to answer our prayers because he loves some people more than others or because we're not good enough. He died so that we would all be blameless before God. That is not the issue. It's not an issue of our worthiness. The God I see in Jesus is thoroughly good, is thoroughly for us, and is thoroughly love. And that is the foundation from which we see all of our theology. And so my hope is that we have some rich takeaways from the leap of faith. First, the best takeaway for me is increased intimacy with God. Right? It allows us to reveal ourselves to him. If we really are in sort of an open system, this is a time where we can take every year to specifically really reveal our hearts to God and our desires. Much like you would you know, like with your spouse or partner or with a roommate or with your family. Sometimes you have to kind of get away, right? You have to take a weekend getaway or go out to eat or have like a, a roommate meeting where you start to talk about your hopes and dreams and what's actually going on in your heart. And so this time that we spend doing my big ask is like that time with God for us to talk about our deepest desires with our creator. And it often reveals our hearts in profound ways. I also think that when we ask for something really specific, which we've encouraged a lot of people to ask for things very specifically, it can give us space to explore why we want what we specifically asked for. Right? This is a little bit like, like spiritual direction here, right? So if you ask God to give you, for example, a promotion, and maybe you had a very specific salary increase that you were hoping to get, and then you didn't get that promotion, the way I would go about exploring that is just trying to go down one level deeper. Why do you want that promotion? Is it because you're anxious about money? Is it that you want to be successful in your vocation? Right? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful, with wanting to be good at what you do. So is that what's underlying it? You know, I want to be recognized for being really good in my field. Right? And then that's the desire that you bring to God and maybe he'll answer those desires or address those in ways that we don't expect. Maybe a promotion isn't the answer to your anxiety about money. Or maybe it's not the best path for you to be successful in your career. But God might answer one of those things in another way that actually gets at what's close to your heart. So first, our, take our takeaway is increased intimacy. Second, my hope is that we prayed more or maybe prayed differently than we would have. So I'll be the first person to admit that I don't remember to pray for my six every day. So I tend to pray every day, but I don't often remember to pray for my six every day. So oftentimes my prayers center around our church. And I especially am thinking about people who I know are hurting or who are sick, or I'm thinking about my family. But what praying for my six does is it causes me to get outside my normal prayer realm and start to pray for people that wouldn't normally be on my radar. And I have found that that's helped me feel more connected to my community as I've chosen different people um, around town to do that with. I really loved what Molly Morton wrote. So she gave me some feedback about the um, praying for her six. 
And I'm going to read. It's a little bit long, but this was really lovely. She said, one of the most tangible outcomes both times I've prayed for my six is that I have improved relationships with one or more of those people. I generally select people for various reasons, but I've intentionally included at least a couple people on my list for whom I find myself having very little patience, often coworkers. Some of you can relate, I'm sure. <laughs> and with whom I have very little connection. And I hope that at the very least, praying for these people regularly will help alter my attitude toward them. And of course it has. But what I find really striking is how both years, at least one of these people has also seemed to soften toward me as well. So last year it was a coworker with whom I rarely spoke and she asked me what I thought about God. And then she confessed that she was struggling with various things. And this was so unexpected, but in another way, it seemed like I was prepared for this exact thing, merely through the act of having prayed for her. And we became friends shortly after that. And then the same thing happened this year. Someone I wasn't close to but had been praying for became extremely vulnerable and open with me in a way that would make no sense except that I'd already been praying for her. And so maybe these people could sense a shift in my attitude toward them, my readiness to see them more completely. I don't know. But I think I might continue choosing my six this way because good things and greater connections seem to happen when I do. And I really, I loved this um, phrase that she said, my readiness to see them more completely. I think I've found that in praying for my six, and some of you may have too, this idea that like my heart kind of softens toward people when I pray for them. So I hope we're praying more, praying more intimately, and then third, I hope we feel more connected as a church. Since we've all been praying together for our big ask for these church plants, that that helps us unite in that vision to see more blue ocean churches that are coming into being. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So let's go ahead and take a couple of minutes of silence here. What I'd like to ask us to do is, if you did the Lenten prayer practices, take these two minutes to just reflect on the things that you asked for and the people that you prayed for. And as you let the Holy Spirit lead your mind through those things, if, if it catches on something that you're wanting to just say a prayer, especially of thanksgiving for what God's been doing, just sort of let your thanks sort of sit there and radiate with God. Or perhaps if you weren't doing this, maybe just go back through your week and think of something happened that you're just really profoundly thankful for. And let's just spend two minutes being grateful before God and just embracing his presence here. So I'll keep my, I'll keep my eye on the time. We don't have to be completely silent. Let's just invite the spirit. We know you're here, Lord. Come and speak with us.
Jesus, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And most especially in this Lenten season where we've been taking a leap of faith and opening our hearts to you and praying together for our community as well as for our church and for our own desires. God, I thank you that you're a God that gives us a choice in loving you. And I thank you that you're a God who hears our cries and hears our petitions and our prayers and that you are at work on our behalf in this world. Lord, we make ourselves willing partners with you to bring your kingdom and your love and your justice and your peace into this world, Lord. In this time between the times, may we be ambassadors of peace. May we be people who are helping to bring um, your love to the people around us. We thank you for who you are. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.